worked on new mics yesterday, hoping to get them all to work. Well, here we are. Hallelujah. It's appropriate this morning that we sang about heaven. How many of you want to see heaven one day? Hallelujah. I want to take some time this morning and talk to us about the entrance into heaven, how to get to heaven. Hallelujah. So I took this song this morning as confirmation. You can definitely turn me down. Hallelujah. How many brought your Bibles with you? Hallelujah. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Good to see each and every one of you. I want to take your attention this morning to a pretty familiar passage of Scripture, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse number 12. It's not often that we start here when we start talking about um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not often that we start at this specific verse, but um, using it as somewhat of a reference. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse number 12 says, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Generally speaking, um, I've used this um, on a couple occasions when uh, officiating a wedding because you talk about two coming together, but you add Jesus in the middle of it, and it makes a cord, and it makes a family that's not easily broken. That's kind of what I've always uh, used this verse as. But I want to start this morning and talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is how our lives are changed by God's power. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's important to understand this morning that the gospel message works. We are sitting here today because the gospel message works. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has worked for every single one of us that are here. If you have never experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost, been, been, been baptized in Jesus' name, I come today to let you know that it does work. But it will not work if we take anything from it or add anything to it. So we have to be intentional about how we preach the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to make sure that we don't add our personal insights into it or we take any scripture out of it that we don't completely understand. We have to preach the whole gospel of Jesus Christ according to the word of God. Not about my idea, not about your idea, it's about the word of God. Galatians says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which was preached unto you, let that man be accursed. So I don't want to be accursed this morning. I don't want to get to heaven one day and realize that none of us made it because we didn't preach the gospel according to the word of God. So this morning we're going to talk about what the Bible says about salvation. The gospel has three parts. It has the death, the burial, and the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Paul's literally saying, I'm preaching to you the same thing that I have already received how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So we're going to talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection this morning. The word gospel means good news. It comes from the Greek word eugalian. I said that right the first time. I am not a uh, I do not speak Greek. I am not a student of Greek. Uh, I do like to look at what Greek words are for specific words in the Bible, the actual translation. They, obviously, they weren't translated in English. They came from Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. Sometimes English words don't translate out 100% the way that it was intention, intended in the Greek. So it's important sometimes to go back to the very Greek or the very Hebrew of it and make sure that we've got everything Correct. So when I did and the word Eugalian came up, I actually had to Google, how do you pronounce Eugalian? And I got the nice little Siri voice that said, Eugalian. And so I am relatively certain that we're pronouncing that correct this morning. Hallelujah. Have you ever wondered why? 
when the very first message was preached in the book of Acts chapter 2, have you ever wondered why the question that the people asked immediately upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2, that their first response was, what shall we do? We don't normally ask, what shall we do when we receive good news? Generally, good news is good news. It's, it's passive. It is, uh, it just, it's just good news. But the word eugalian is a circular word. It means a sacrifice given in thanks for good tidings. Eugalian, that word, was commonly used in Greco-Roman culture as a technical term for news of victory. The messenger would appear, he would raise his right hand in greeting, and he would call out with a loud voice, Rejoice, for we are victorious. But his appearance, by his appearance it is known already that this man is bringing tidings and good news. His face would shine, his spear would be decked with laurel, his head would be crowned, he would swing a branch of, of palms, joy would fill the city, and eugalia, or sacrifices, are offered. The temples would be garlanded. A celebratory race would be held. Crowns would be put on the sacrifices. And the one to whom the message is owed is honored with a wreath. Thus, Eugalian is closely linked with a thought of victory in battle. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the most convicting definition of the word Eugalian is seen by a pagan messenger radiantly announcing the good news of an earthly victory. And there is a huge response by them that hear the good news. How much more should we respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, his eternal triumph over sin, his eternal triumph over Satan, his eternal triumph over death on our behalf? How much more should we give sacrifice and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? That's why in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached that message unto them, they were responding, Eugalia, to the words that Peter spoke unto them, and their response is, what shall we do? What is our response? What is our Eugalia? What is our sacrifice now that we have to give upon hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Therefore we repent, we are baptized, and we receive the Holy Ghost. This is our eugalia. This is our thanksgiving sacrifice for the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no gospel without a response from you and I. There is a message, but there is no gospel unless you or I respond. That's why in the very first church service, in the very first uh, recorded church history, the very first sermon that was ever preached by one of the apostles, after the very first time someone heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, their response is, what shall we do? And at the very first altar call in the church age, Peter would say, okay, you want to know what to do, then you have to obey the gospel by doing three things. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So if we are going to respond, if we are going to obey the gospel that Peter preached, that Jesus himself gave us, then we have to obey scripture by repenting of our sins, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's interesting though, because we always start at Acts chapter 2. We always start at that very first sermon that Peter preached. Why did Peter preach this message at all? Why didn't Peter get up there and say, look, you're making fun of us. You know, Jesus didn't like that. He took a whip to all y'all once. I'm going to take a whip. Why didn't Peter just correct? Why would Peter preach this message specifically? And the ironic thing is, is because Peter was reiterating and re-preaching the very last instruction that Jesus himself would leave with his disciples before he ascended back into heaven. 
Peter is not preaching a brand new message. Peter is regurgitating the same message that Jesus preached to the disciples. They didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't understand the meaning behind what he was saying until they went to Jerusalem and the Holy Ghost was poured out. But he all of a sudden connected the dots and he said, oh yeah, what Jesus preached in the book of Luke chapter 24 when Jesus said, then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Uh, and Jesus said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and the remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Uh, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. It's the last instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples that repentance and remission of sin should be preached and that they should wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus said, I will be crucified, I will be buried, and I will rise again. And because of this, I want you to go and I want you to preach repentance. I want you to preach baptism or for the remission of sin in my name and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The promise of the Father will be given. The very last thing that Jesus did on earth with his disciples was to emphasize how to Eugalia, to respond and to obey the gospel. And Peter preached this very same message in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after he connected the dots. Then all of a sudden, all of Jesus' teaching, just a few short days earlier, made a lot of sense to Peter. So Peter preached the gospel message of Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that we love so dearly. There is only one salvation message. Regardless of what denominations and, and religions say, there is, there is not uh, a multitude of ways to heaven. There is one gospel message, and it is the message that Jesus himself gave us. And what was recorded in Luke chapter 24 is the gospel message straight from the words of Jesus Christ. It's not that we believe that we are right and everyone else is wrong. It's not that. It's that we believe the Bible is right and everyone else is wrong. What I believe and what you believe and what dots you connect are unimportant. What I preach, if I don't connect the dots scripturally, is unimportant. The important thing is what does Jesus Christ himself say is important for the gospel message. The first step in the new birth is repentance. Repentance is not just accepting the good news. And it is not just feeling sorry for your sins. But repentance is an offering of yourself as a sacrifice in thanksgiving for the gospel. Repentance is being sorry enough for what you've done to change who you are. Repentance says, I'm not just feeling sorry, but I'm turning away from and I'm changing everything about myself to better align myself with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Repentance is not a feeling. It is a complete turning around. It is an about face. It's not about how you feel at that moment. It is an inward change of our attitude. It is an inward change of our person. And when we get repented and we change from an attitude standpoint and we change from a heart standpoint, it will lead to an outward change of action. When I change how I think about things and when I change about how I talk about things and how I dwell on things, it will eventually change. I'll stop going to certain places and I'll stop doing certain things because in my heart I have been fully and completely repented of those things. Unless both of these occur, unless there's an attitude that leads to an outward change of action, unless both of these things occur, repentance has not truly taken place. 
if we repent in our mind, but yet we go right back to doing the same thing. We haven't truly repented of our sins. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 says, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Repentance is essential for salvation. God has already done His part. He has given His good news. He has given His good news. Now it's up to you, not God. Now it's our turn to respond to the good news that has been given. So repentance is not a feeling. It's a complete turning around of who we are as a response to the good news of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely essential for salvation. How do I know that? Because Jesus Christ himself said, go and preach that repentance must be done. So it's the first step to salvation is repentance. God has already done his part. The good news has been announced. Now it's up to you and I. This is not in God's ball for park anymore. This is in our courts to respond to what God has already given us. Luke chapter 13 verse 3 says, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall likewise perish. Many people today think they are saved by accepting Christ as their Savior or asking Jesus into their heart or by simply believing in Jesus as Pastor Sean preached about Sunday night. Many times this is not even real repentance because it doesn't change us. We repent because it's what we're supposed to do. And then we leave doing the same things and we're told that we're human flesh. So therefore we're going to struggle with things. And I do believe that man, as flesh, we will struggle with things. But we cannot make allowances for our sin. That's not true repentance. We can't repent of something, keep doing the same thing, and write it off as it's just my nature to sin. Because true repentance says I'm changing how I feel about that in my heart. I'm changing how I feel about that in my mind. And eventually when those two things are changed, my outward action will demonstrate that I'm no longer good with doing the same things that I've always done. If I'm still struggling with it, then I need to truly check whether or not my heart and my mind were truly repentant of that sin. But even if those who truly, really do repent, many people stop there and they go no further. That is the theological equivalent of leaving Jesus on the cross. Paul told us that there was a next part of the gospel. He told us that Jesus' burial was the next part. And Peter told us that our next step is baptism in Jesus' name. We can't just die to sin and stop there. Accepting Him as our Savior and truly repenting of our sins and trying to live according to what the rest of the Bible says is wonderful. But that's not the final step. Jesus did what? He died, He was buried, and He was given life again. He was resurrected. And that is our model of salvation. He tells us repentance is what? Death to sin. Then we must be buried in baptism. And we must be given a new birth, or be resurrected again. So there is a three-part step to salvation. Repentance is just the first step. So now we have to go and be buried. The second step, obviously, to the new birth is baptism. Mark chapter 16 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. For he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Understand, and this is, this is incredible. And I, I purposed this morning and last night, I, I purposed intentionally to come in early today to fill the baptismal tank. And I got a couple questions like, why are you filling the baptismal tank? Is somebody getting baptized? And my response was, no, I was just making sure that we had water in it and we're just cleaning it out. But in my heart, I wanted to come in and activate faith. I wanted to come in and say, God, Today, somebody can be baptized because when I look through Scripture and I look through the book of Acts and I look at the mentions of baptism in Acts, baptism was never delayed. It was never, well, come back next week and we'll baptize you. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says they baptized them the same day. Acts chapter 6, verse 16, verse 33 says that same hour they were baptized. Acts 9 and 18 says immediately. Acts 10, 48, he commanded them to be baptized then. Acts 22, verse 16, why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash? It's not about delaying baptism. When you are pricked in your heart, they taught them that when you have repented of your sins, don't wait, don't tarry, be baptized immediately the same hour, the same day, uh, be baptized, arise, be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Matthew says, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that's why I think people get a little bit mixed up because they want to repent of their sins and they want to get baptized. And they look at Matthew 28, 19 as the method and the mode by which we are to be baptized. But they forget that one little word in there, that you should baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. John chapter 5, verse 43 says, I am come in my Father's name. This is Jesus talking. I have come in. That word in, I in, is translated translated out to bearing or bringing. So Jesus is literally saying, I have come bringing, I have come bearing my Father's name. Matthew chapter 1, in prophesying the birth of Jesus Christ, they said, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. John chapter 14 says, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send to you, will come in what? My name. There is only one name given among men, whereby we must be saved. That's probably one of my favorite scriptures because we can't get around it. It is so cut and dry. There is only one name given among men whereby we must be. We have to be saved. That at the very mention of what? The name Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess of the things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. There's only one name. Jesus, we understand we have a revelation of him. He was the Father. He is the Son, and it is the Holy Spirit. There's one name given among men whereby we must be saved. So what Jesus was telling them is baptize them in the name of the Father. Baptize them in the name of the Son. And baptize them in the name of the Holy Ghost. But there's only one name. The name of Jesus must be pronounced over you when you are buried with him. Water baptism in the book of Acts. I know, I know we get this a lot, and this is, this is not new for any of you, and I, I get that. But nowhere in Scripture is anyone ever baptized in the titles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Not one time. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says they baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The Samaritan believers in Acts chapter 8 were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10 were baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the disciples of John in Acts chapter 19 verse 9 were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Matthew didn't write the gospel until 62 AD. Uh, he was making a very theological statement about the oneness of God that had been confirmed 30 years after the day of Pentecost. For 30 years uh, they had baptized in no other name but Jesus Christ. Matthew was literally saying, I am confirming that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved that when you call on the name of Jesus you are calling on the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost you must be baptized in that name and so you ask today what if I've already been baptized in some different way what if they pronounce the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost what if they baptized me in the titles we have our answer to that question found in Acts chapter 19. And he said unto them, Under what then were you baptized? And they said, We were baptized into John's baptism. Then Paul, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that you should believe on him which should come after him. That is, on who? Christ Jesus. And when they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They didn't wait. They didn't tarry. When they had a revelation of who Jesus was, they, their old baptism all of a sudden meant nothing to them because they knew in their heart of hearts that I must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When we are baptized, 
We put on Christ. Literally, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When we are buried with Christ, we are buried with Christ when we are baptized. That's the second step to the rebirth, I mean to, to the new birth. You have to follow the same formula that Jesus himself laid as an example to us. We must repent and die. We must be buried with him in baptism. Romans chapter 6 says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. When we are baptized, we enter into a covenant with God. Matthew or Colossians chapter 2 says, In whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, being buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Baptism, it is, it is an announcement of a covenant. It is not a covenant by you, but it is a covenant by God. It is not you saying, I belong to Jesus. It is God saying, you belong to me. And now we are in a covenant together. Baptism is absolutely essential for salvation. John chapter 20 verse 23 says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But understand, the church doesn't have power to forgive sins. You can't come up to me, I can't lay my hand on you, and I can't pray a simple prayer of repentance and all your sins go away. I cannot forgive you of sins, only Jesus himself can do that. So what does this verse mean? Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. What does this mean exactly? It means that whoever we baptize has their sins remitted or washed away. But whoever we do not baptize keeps their sin. Paul would compare baptism to crossing over the Red Sea from the children of Israel. In 1 Corinthians he would write, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Once Israel had crossed the Red Sea, Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt could not get through the water to them. Meaning that when you are baptized and your sins are washed away and you enter into that covenant with God, the devil can no longer legally bring up your past again. God declares that my child is forgiven, his sins are washed away, only you can choose to go back and bring those things up. The Bible says that when God forgives you, he casts your sins as far as the east is from the west, and that God himself forgets about them. Hell can't come back and tell you that you're worthless and you're not any good because of your past mistakes, because God has already washed them. The only person that can bring you again under the subjection of sin is you. You yourself can do it. The third step in the new birth is to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Repentance and being baptized is two steps, just like Jesus had to die and be buried. There is a third step where Jesus is resurrected again. We must be resurrected again. We have been buried. We, are, we died. Our sins are gone. We're done. We were buried. We are still in the grave right now, meaning just because you've repented of your sins and you were baptized is not the end of the process. There's a third step to this. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in all the uttermost parts of the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. The new birth experience is designed to let your old life die. Let your old life be buried. And then to give you a literal new life by the power of the Holy Ghost. 
The point of the resurrection is not just so that Jesus got up from the grave, but that I can get up out of my deadness of my old life. The point of him resurrecting is not just to say, hey, I did it. It's so that you and I have a mode of new life in Jesus Christ. Jesus being uh, put to death was the act of man. Jesus' burial was an act of man. But Jesus' resurrection was an act of God. So therefore, repentance is my action. Baptism is my action. But when I receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it is the action on the part of God as a response to my obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwelleth in you. Jesus would rise out of the grave in some uh, glorified body. He didn't need the stone rolled away. He didn't need the stone to move so that he could come out of the grave. But the stone was rolled away as a sign to us that Jesus had actually literally risen from the dead. The Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God. It encompasses much more than merely speaking in tongues. But speaking in tongues is given as a supernatural sign to us that we have actually literally received the Holy Ghost. Just like the stone rolling away as a literal evidence that Jesus had come out of the grave. Uh, the Spirit, uh, when it is fills us and we begin to speak in tongues, it is a literal evidence. Uh, it is a literal sign that now new life has been given. We were dead. Uh, we were buried. Uh, and now new life has come. Uh, it is an evidence to those around us that now we are no longer in the grave of our life, uh, but we have been resurrected into new life. When you look at Pentecost, it means 50. It commemorated the end of the wheat harvest and the giving of the law. Jeremiah chapter 31 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make within the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law on their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, that I will put my laws in their heart and in their minds will I write them. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all together in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven uh, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And what began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. And if you continue reading, it says, And they were all amazed. Everyone around them were amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What means this? What does this mean, these people that are speaking in some crazy tongue? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and upon my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Verse 12 and verse 13. Some were amazed, some doubted, some mocked. These are still the same standards that we get today when somebody receives the Holy Ghost. Nothing has changed. There are still some that are amazed. There are still some that doubt. And there are still some that mock. It's the standard response from the flesh on the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. What meaneth this? Those that have mocked, those that didn't understand, those that had doubted asked a simple question. What meaneth this? And I think they did it from a place of mocking. They literally were like, what does this even mean? 
These people are crazy. But they asked a question, and Peter was just brave enough to answer. What is this that they are doing? What means this? And Peter said, this, this is that. What you are seeing is what Joel had prophesied. Joel said that God's Spirit would be poured out. Joel never even mentioned speaking in tongues. It was Peter who connected the dots from Joel's prophecy and Isaiah's prophecy. Joel would say this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my spirit. But then he connected it to the the book of Isaiah, the prophecy in Isaiah. When Isaiah would write, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to his people. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith they may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. And then Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians uh, that in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, uh, and yet for all that they that for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. This is the speaking in tongues. This that you're talking about, this speaking in tongues that you're talking about. This is that. This is what Joel and what Isaiah were trying to prophesy about. This is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. This speaking in tongues is the evidence and the proof of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the life. When the church began on the day of Pentecost, the disciples spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer observed evidence when the Samaritans received the Holy Ghost by laying on hands. Paul had the experience in Acts chapter 9 for he spoke with tongues more than anyone else in the Corinthian church believers who are just now experiencing John's baptism are now rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ and the Bible says in Acts 19 that when it happened they spoke in other tongues In Acts chapter 10, in Cornelius' household, who are Gentiles, they're not even people of the promise. They begin to speak with other tongues when they receive the Holy Ghost. They wouldn't even be us right now. There wouldn't even be a Gentile church if they had not received the baptism of the Holy Ghost at Cornelius' house. That's the only reason the Jews even knew that the Holy Ghost had been poured out on the Gentiles. It's the only reason that the Jews ever allowed you and I to ever come into this thing. It's because the same evidence that happened in Cornelius' household is the same evidence that happened in Acts 2, 8, 9, and 19. It's the same experience. Whether you're black, you're white, you're red, you're yellow, you're poor, you're rich, it's the same experience. You must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. You must repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and receive. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 10 says, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? Can any man say that we can't baptize them now because they just had the same Holy Ghost experience you did? Can anybody say not to baptize them? And then Peter said, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? We've received the same thing. And Peter's letting them know, hey, I know that this thing has been inclusive of just Jews for a long time. But now the promise is not given to just the Jews. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. For this promise is unto you and to your children, to many as the Lord our God shall call. It's not about race. It's not about creed. It's not about one denomination over the other. It's about whosoever will come and ask, what shall we do to be saved? It's about the eukalia. It's about our response to hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. You don't receive the Holy Ghost through your head, but you receive the Holy Ghost through your heart. You can't just make up your mind, I'm going to receive the Holy Ghost today. Come in here, repent of your sins, be baptized in Jesus, and expect it to happen. There has got to be a heart change. You have got to be hungry for it. You have got to search after it and make up your mind. I'm not going back to where I was. I'm not going back to the things that I've always dealt with. I'm going to repent. I'm going to change. I'm going to be baptized, and I'm going to hunger after this thing. John said in John 7, in the last days, the great day of the feast, that Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Meaning, they didn't quite understand what he said. But what he was literally saying is that if you'll hunger after him, and if you'll thirst, after him if you believe on him ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost understand your belly bypasses your brain have you ever been really hungry but you're on a diet and you really want a cheeseburger how many of you have ever given up your diet for one sonic cheeseburger because your belly is greater than your brain Your belly bypasses the brain, and out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water, meaning that desire, that inner struggle, that inner hunger, that inner thirst has got to outweigh what your brain is trying to tell you. When you're trying to say this thing is not real, this thing is not, there's no evidence of any of this, your brain will tell you one thing, but you've got to search your heart and say, God, I understand that my brain can't reason this thing out, but my heart is telling me i got to get right with God. I've got to get right with God. i got to repent. I got to change. I got to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I can't live like this anymore. I got to be different. I got to be changed and search after Him and hunger and thirst after Him, and you shall be filled. A study a few years ago by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania found that there, there were neurological parallels between what worshipers would experience when they spoke in tongues. And what actually transpires physiologically in the brain. Scientists would take brain images from worshipers as they were speaking in tongues and as they were singing. And they would compare the two images. And the researchers discovered that the frontal lobes, which is the willful thinking part of the brain. Those parts when worshiping and were speaking in tongues, those stopped working. Those were quiet. As were the language centers, which is important because your language center is what tells you to speak. It's what tells you to say something you understand. That was quiet, meaning it wasn't coming from their brain. Meaning they weren't thinking this thing through, but yet they were speaking. Scans of people practicing meditation. Scans of people practicing or participating in any other spiritual practices never showed that. Meditation showed the thoughts, the frontal lobe working. But yet when they scanned people speaking in tongues, the brain went quiet. Because it's not about the brain. It's not a language that you or I can make up. It's not about what I can make my tongue do. It's about what the Spirit of God speaks out of me. It's not me making it up. It's the Spirit of God giving you evidence that He has come inside of the heart. Radiology investigators observed an increased or a decreased brain activities. 
By measuring regional cerebral blood flow from SPECT, which is the single photon emission computed tom tomography imaging, SPECT imaging. While the subjects were speaking in tongues, they were trying to measure this SPECT imaging. Their study is titled The Measurement of Regional Cerebral Blood Flow During Glossal Ale, a primarily SPECT study co-authored by Nancy Weinberg, Donna Morgan, and Mark Waldman. Understand with me today, we didn't start this thing with much class. When you look back at Acts chapter 2, there wasn't a lot of class in this thing. It wasn't as classy then as what we think we are now. First, it was 120 people about 2,000 years ago who worshipped so intensely that they appeared drunk to everyone around them. We are their descendants. Acts 2 says, For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. Next, it was 60 people. About 100 years ago, in a decrepit old building at 312 Azusa Street in the industrial park of Louis, Los Angeles, the revival, the revival they were running ran nonstop, day in and day out. Prayer meetings for over three years happened in that building. By mid-May of 1906, anywhere from 300 to 1,500 people were trying to cram their way into that building for any service. People from a diversity of backgrounds came together to worship men, women, children, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, rich, poor, illiterate, educated. People of all ages flocked to Los Angeles with both skepticism and desire to participate. Worship at 312 Azusa Street was frequent and spontaneous with services going almost around the clock. The Los Angeles Times, along with other newspapers, were not kind in their description of Azusa Street. One of these I don't even want to read because it's so vile. But here's what one of them wrote in the Los Angeles Times meetings are held in a tumble-down shack on Azusa Street and the devotees of the weird doctrine practice the most fanatical rites. They preach the wildest theories and they work themselves into a state of mad excitement in their peculiar zeal. The night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of the worshipers who spend hours swaying forth and back in a nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and supplication. They claim to have the gift of tongues and be able to understand the Babel. There is a disgraceful intermingling of the races. They cry and they make howling noises all day and into the night. They run, they jump, they shake all over, shout to the top of their voices, they spin in circles, they fall out on the sawdust blanketed floor, jerking, kicking, and rolling all over. Some of them pass out and do not move for hours as though they were dead. These people appear to be mad, mentally deranged, or under some spell. They claim to be filled with the Spirit. They have a one-eyed, illiterate black man as a preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between the wooden milk crates. He doesn't talk very much, but at times uh, he can be heard shouting, Repent! And he's supposed to be running this thing. Oh, and they repeatedly sing the same song. The Comforter has come. Little could the subscribers of the Los Angeles Times have guessed that in the following years to come, historians would say that what happened at Azusa Street, that revival would give birth uh, to modern Pentecostalism uh, and become the most significant revival of the 20th century uh, in terms uh, of worldwide evangelism. It's not a pretty thing. Uh, it's not about being pretty. Uh, it's not about class. Uh, it's about the outpouring uh, of the Holy Ghost. Uh, it's not about what you think. Uh, it's not about what I think. Uh, it's about the eugalia, that outward response to the, what has been given to the good news of Jesus Christ. This, this speaking in tongues is that. This speaking in tongues is the outpouring of God's Spirit. 
the church, the church and its doctrines did not produce Pentecost. We did not produce this thing. But out of Pentecost produced the church and its doctrines. It is not merely the preaching of the apostles that brought down power from God. Rather, it was men full of the Holy Ghost that would spend the rest of their lives trying to explain and articulate and invite others into the power that God had given. They were not mere Pentecostal apologists defending some creed out of a sense of duty to the prophet Joel. They were souls that were on fire with a sense of duty because they understood that this was a doctrinal utterance on spirit baptism that came out of their own experience with God. Experiential Pentecost, not doctrinal Pentecost, is the apostolic model. Experiencing something is greater than hearing something. So experiential Pentecost is our goal. Meaning that when you come to this building uh, and you come to this church, uh, you ought to experience something. Because when you experience something, the right doctrine will always follow the right experience. Pentecostal preaching may ensure doctrine. Preaching may ensure doctrine. It may ensure what we believe in. It may ensure that we believe in the Holy Ghost. But only Pentecostal preaching of spiritual hunger ensures that we will ever receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's not about what you hear. It's about what you hunger after and what you thirst after. A believed in Pentecost is not good. Believing on Pentecost is nothing. But it's receiving Pentecost that will change the world. And it still works this way. It hasn't changed. God Himself said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I change not. He's not going to give it one way in the book of Acts and then change the mode and not let anybody know what it is. It didn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with evidence of speaking in other tongues. Stand with me, stand with me, stand with me. So the question today is this, is to ask the same question that they did on the day of Pentecost. It's not for the sake of asking a question. It's the sake of having a hunger in us that drives us to ask the question. Lord, truly, truly, what must I do to be saved? The good news was given. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. That was given. The gospel has been given. And now it's time for the eugalia. It's time for our response. How shall we respond to the good news that has been given? What shall we do to be saved? And Peter standing up there said, repent of your sins. Die to the flesh. Be buried with Him in baptism. And then be given new life through the Holy Ghost. That is the only mode of salvation that is ever given in Scripture. If you've never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I invite you today to lift up your hands. If you truly want to change, I, I, I ask you and I implore you today to search your heart. Let that desire that you feel lead you to simply say, God, what must I do to be saved? Here's my response, God. I want to change everything about me. Come on, lift your voices. Come on, I feel the Holy Ghost here this morning.